Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing today, sir? Yeah, I'm so glad to be talking with you about the scriptures again. I'm why I'm wondering how you haven't gotten tired of it yet. <laughs> we got purpose, man. Like, we're doing yeah. something that is beyond us. And I think that's something we get from our listeners. We've gotten some great feedback from them, and it's great to know that we're helping people integrate their identity with their faith and their community and the that scriptures. is important absolutely absolutely so yeah I, I definitely got to thank the listeners and just anybody else who might benefit from this because that is the primary thing keeping me going here that's what gives a lot of what we're doing here meaning if not all of it to me before we get started, I just want to remind everybody that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So Derek, we had a couple things or like one big thing that happened this week. You want to talk about that for a bit? Right. As many of you might have heard, Pope Francis came out with a document or was in a documentary where he said very publicly and very deliberately that he supports same sex civil unions. Mm -hmm. And not only did he say that, but he said this is an issue of human rights. Now, I don't have his exact words pulled up, but, and he also said that same gender couples should have a family. And I think these are really radical. Now, some of the really, the really progressive people will say, oh, that's not enough. And there's, there's a sense in which that is right. But we also ha- want to have, in the other hand, the fact that what he did is fairly groundbreaking. One is that instead of just saying, oh, we've got to tolerate it or we've got to you know sweep it under the rug and let it happen, even though we don't like it, It was actually positive support because he framed it as an issue of human rights and the dignity of queer families. Now, he didn't use the word queer. And in fact, I don't know if he did this interview in Italian. I don't even know what the original language was. But he very clearly said that gay folks have the right to have a family and this is an issue of human rights. And what's profound about that is, you know, some of the some of the more radical people here in the U.S. will say, well, that's not enough, and all he did is catch up to where the U.S. was in the ni- 1990s, which is kind of true because in the 90s and 2000s, you had all this talk about civil unions, which is basically separate but equal, a lesser, a second-class type of marriage. A lot of the rights of marriage, but not the name marriage. Uh-huh. But what people don't realize is that Pope Francis is the head of a global church, not and some of these other countries literally are where the United States was in the 1990s. Many uh, majority Catholic countries do not have marriage equality or they don't have civil unions of any kind. So this is actually a step forward for them. And I heard recently that the president of Venezuela, which is a majority Catholic country, said, hey, based on what the Pope said, we should now have same-gender marriage. Mm. and is looking for the legislative body in Venezuela to enact marriage equality. So I mean like right. so some of these things have impact and there's moral leadership and you know it's it's significant because there are a lot of conservative Catholics that are pushing back on it 
and yeah. and and saying, well, remember the Pope isn't completely infallible when he's just randomly speaking. But this wasn't mm-hmm. completely a random speak. It wasn't like you shoved a microphone in, in his face while he was boarding an airplane and getting something that wasn't planned. This is very much a deliberate planned statement from the Pope. Now, it is his personal opinion, but I think he has a lot of moral leadership, a lot of moral leadership in the way that Benedict the 16th did not have. And so right. I'm wondering where this is going to go. Yeah, that will be curious. Anything else before we go into the Come Follow Me? No, that's it. This week we are in the Book of Mormon, chapters 1 through 6. Generally speaking, Derek, I kind of struggled with it because in terms of doctrine to extract from these chapters, there wasn't a lot that really spoke to me that couldn't be used in a somewhat spiritually abusive way. You know how people always are saying something along the lines of even in times of trial or trouble, you should still be faithful because, you know, Job, Joseph Smith and Liberty Jail. Like, I feel like because of chapters or stories like this, we don't really give people a lot of time to grieve or at least permission to grieve or to backslide a little bit simply because, you know, we have precedent for people experiencing extreme hardship and still displaying faithful action. Uh, But before I really like go into that, I wanted to see if you had any context you wanted to use to frame our discussion today. Yeah, I want to think about Mormon as a literary character because so often people Disneyfy the Book of Mormon and make the villains out to be all bad and the good people all good. And, you know, this happens very often with Nephi. And so many people miss the complexity of the characters. And I think this is a... Mormon has a very profound and very complex character here. For example, he goes back and forth on a number of things, like whether he is or is not going to assist the Nephites in their military action, whether he is or is not going to preach repentance to the people. Because he goes back and forth on these issues, you really see some complexity, and you can't really say that Mormon's all good or all bad. And you can't really say that the Nephites, even though he portrays the Nephites basically as all bad, it's complex because he's willing to work with them and the Lamanites as well. It's hard to say that they're all bad either. So I think we should just pause and note the complexity of the characterization in this as we would in any other literary masterpiece. So with that, Derek, I want to kind of, uh, like I said, there's n- there's nothing really specific in these verses that I want to hone in on because there's there's kind of a lot going on here. And I struggled with it simply because these chapters are just so depressing, man. There's just so much loss, so much wickedness, so much crime and war and violence throughout these throughout these chapters that it it made the read kind of hard, and it also made, I, I, I suppose, my ability to gain anything positive from these verses also difficult. So anytime I caught like a little glimmer of hope or a glimmer of inspiration, I like clutched onto it. And the first one that I came across was in, Mos- sorry, not Mosiah, was in Mormon 2.19. And I just want to read this verse real quick. Mormon says here, 
Woe is me because of their wickedness, for my heart has been filled with sorrow because of their wickedness all my days. Nevertheless, I know that I shall be lifted up at the last day. Now, real quick, all my days is not an exaggeration for Mormon. Mormon literally at the beginning of this record tells us that he was 10 years old when Amaron approached him about guarding and being in charge of the sacred records. He was 10 years old, which is insane. I think about where I was at 10 years old. I don't want to think about some grown man saying, hey, in the midst of all this conflict and impending war and wickedness, I think I would like you to take charge of these records that have been passed from our fathers for the last thousand years. It's a lot of pressure for one thing. And I just, I'm really struggling to try to put myself in Mormon's shoes to just try to imagine what it would have been like to have grown up in that kind of conflict and in that kind of wickedness. When I, when I thought of this, I thought about the, uh, the biography, There Are No Children Here. I don't know if you are familiar with, uh, with no, that book or that story. That one. Okay. So they made me read it in my juvenile justice class at BYU. And the whole premise of the title is basically that at the, I think it was like the Hamilton Homes, some uh, projects in, uh, in Chicago, but basically talking about because of the poverty and because of the gang violence and because of uh, just the general abjectness of the state that these low-income children are living in, they never get an opportunity to be children. The primary characters of this story, they're 11 years old and they're nine years old. Their mom is like in and out of, it's either their mom or their dad, but like one of their parents is like on drugs. And that's like apparently the story for a lot of these other kids. Like they have parents that either are not present and they take solace or take safety in gangs. Uh, They resort to things like theft and robbery just to get by. And if they don't resort to those things, some of them, as soon as they're able, are having jobs just so they can like help their families get by and stuff so i feel like mormon at 10 years old was a lot like that mormon never really got an opportunity to be a child like at age of 15 we read that like not four years after he's received this charge he is thinking about preaching to the people and god isn't going to let him because god's like no these people are not trying to hear you dude so like don't be preaching to them but at 15 he's like i gotta preach to these people and I, again, I'm thinking about where I was mm-hmm. at 15. I still had an opportunity to be a child at 15. I was in high school. I wasn't thinking about, I wasn't thinking about nothing like this. You know, granted, I was coming to an awareness of who I was as a person and the consequences of my skin color. But goodness, doing what Mormon was doing, being in charge of these records, having to preach to his people because they're so wicked. Like, I'm not thinking about that kind of thing at 15. And it just struck me how sad it was that Mormon didn't get a childhood. But at the same time, I did notice just one little thing early in uh, Moroni chapter 1. I believe that Mormon does appear to be a child of privilege, um, just based Mm -hmm. on what I read in verse 6. So it said he was carried by his father into the land southward, even to the land of Zarahemla. First of all, Zarahemla is the like metropolitan hub of the Nephite nation. Secondly, you don't carry, you don't get carried nowhere without some wealth. So like, I'm under the impression that not only did Mormon not get an opportunity to be a child, but also as a child of privilege, he didn't really get to, for lack of a better word, enjoy his wealth or enjoy his family's wealth, whatever the case may be. And uh, also, he was kind of in a position where people may have known who he was. And whatever role he had in society pr- uh, prior to Amaron approaching to him, approaching him, 
may have been significant or at least well-known simply because he was a person of means. But anyway, any thoughts about that before I continue with my general assessment of these chapters? two things. One is, I'm curious about the role of young people in God's purposes and plans for the world. Mm. Because I think, given who our heroes... Let's look. Within our generation, do we have any heroes in the church currently that are young people? I think most of our culture societally idolizes and adores some dudes who are average like 85 years old. Like, do we Mm. actually, like, can young people in the church today look up to another young person and say, that's where I, what I should be doing right now? I don't think we have that. We could go back and look at Joseph Smith as a 14 year old. We could look at, here you've got, there's many examples in the scriptures of God using young people. But I'm wondering, like, where would we go if we, well, I, maybe I'm not so young anymore, but where would young <laughs> people go to have someone as a role model, right? I'm not sure we have some of that. But that's a good point. The second point is about Mormon being learned, which is another indication of his privilege because it says in mm. verse two of chapter one, I began to be learned somewhat after the manning, after the manner of the learning of my people. And I think being learned is a mixed blessing because Mm -hmm. it allows you access to certain tools and skills that can be very helpful for people. However, it can also interfere with your ability to relate with other people or your ability to relate with the gospel if, if you are learned but don't do it correctly. That's true. All Mormon has known, my point in bringing that much up about his childhood was that all he's known his entire life was wickedness and conflict. There were no miracles among the people. I think it says at another point in uh, chapter one or two, no gifts is the word that uh, Mormon used. No gifts among them, no spiritual gifts. The three disciples of Christ were taken away. The people are warring with each other. They won't repent. They won't hear the word of the gospel. Mormon, as I said already, he wasn't allowed to preach to his people. And when he was, nobody listened to him, you know, even when God told him what to say to his people, it was in vain, again, to use uh, Mormon's words, the people's wickedness and their pride. It gets so bad at one point that Moroni refuses to lead them. Mormon is done with these people, like done with them. Like this is by the, I think when Mormon says he's refusing to lead his people, he's about 50 by that point, 50 years he's dealt with this nonsense, trying to have his own relationship with God, trying to live into his own righteousness. And he's only able to take hope, as it says in uh, Moroni 2 verse 19, take hope in being lifted up at the last day. Because the times he felt like he was maybe able to persuade the Nephites to live better, they let him down. When things were especially rough, their sorrow wasn't unto repentance. And when they succeeded against their enemies in battle, they didn't see God's hand in, uh, in their preservation, even, even when the odds were stacked against them. Greater wickedness does Mormons see than ever before in all of Israel. Like that's what, that's what is described in Mormon chapter three. And again, you've described uh, Mormon as a literary character, but I do want to kind of take that at face value where Mormon basically says that never has any kind of wickedness existed in that land or in the, among the people of Israel than the wickedness that Mormon is seeing. And when things were especially rough, Mormon remains committed 
to his mission, even when he sees the Lamanites are about to overtake his people. This last verse, or the second to last verse, I think, in chapter 4. I, Mormon, seeing that the Lamanites were about to overthrow the land, therefore I did go to the hill Shem and did take up all the records which Amaron had hit up unto the Lord. Like he's still committed to the mission. He still goes to get the records. In the following chapter, he'll lead his men again. But he'll still say he's without hope concerning his people. In chapter 6, he does a last stand and watches all of his people die except for 24. Like this is hundreds of thousands remaining in the Nephite nation. And they're all gone. He like names all of his generals and how all their 10,000 were dead. And basically it's just him, his son, and like 22 more people that are still alive. And he's got to behold all of it. He's got to see all of this carnage and all this destruction and all of this violence. He's an older man at this point. And again, all he's known is war, violence, destruction, wickedness, oppression, economic instability. It's just sad. The question I was begging throughout the whole my whole reading of these chapters is what is keeping Mormon going? Mormon's not the only person I've asked that of. Just a couple of weeks, I just a couple of weeks ago, I got to sit on a panel with my uh, with my mom, Dr. Diane, and we were talking about the protests that were happening in Utah over Breonna Taylor and other people. I think this was in the immediate aftermath of the Breonna Taylor verdict. I got to participate on this panel with with my mother, with some uh, local activists in uh, the local Black Lives Matter chapters. And the hope and the commitment that I listened to my mom speak with, it was honestly inspiring because she is just as committed to the cause at uh, 70 years old, close to 70 years old, as she was many years ago. And I don't know where she got it from. I don't know where she gets that level of commitment from. I'll, I'll come back to that in a second, but it made it, it reminded me of some words that I heard spoken of at a uh, at one of the George Floyd marches that happened in Boston over the summer. One of the elders from a local Roxbury church got up and he said something along the lines of, "We are still having these. I'm having these same conversations now that I was having 40 years ago during the civil rights movement, or how like 50, 60 years ago." during the civil rights movement, same conversations. So I think about that in the black community and I'm just like, what is keeping y'all going? What is making y'all wanna keep engaging in this fight? How can you look at everything that you've experienced over the course of your life and still remain committed to your mission, still remain committed to the recognition of the humanity of your people, still remain committed to having these same conversations, these same talks. Black folks in this country, we watch our men and women die at the hands of the same people under the same questionable circumstances, and we watch the same thing get done. Nothing. Like, what is keeping us going? I don't have a good answer for that. And I don't know if it's proper for me to try to have this conversation now because I feel like we are going to get hints of that in Mormon chapter 7 through 9 as well as uh, the end of Moroni but that was just the question I kept coming back to what is keeping Mormon going and what keeps people on the margins today going even as they watch their humanity get disrespected and not just in their immediate lives but they've watched this happen with their ancestors and it's not likely that you know, people are our age, Derek. It's not likely that we are going to see the kind of progress that we want to see in our lifetimes. This reminded me as well of Martin Luther King Jr.'s last top, the mountaintop speech, I think it's called. But he says something along the lines of he has seen 
the mountaintop. He just wants to do God's will. He has looked over and he said, I have seen the promised land acknowledges. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know that we as a people, we will get to the promised land. So I am happy. So I'm not worried any about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Ah, shoot. Hold up. Um, Ooh, um, You know, in my heart of hearts, I feel like I know where, um, I feel like I know where the drive is coming from. I feel like in spite of the hopelessness that Mormon has felt, he knows that his mission is going to extend beyond him. And he knows that his mission extends beyond his sorrow. He talks about how he's not just performing or he's not just acting for his people, but he's acting for the people who will come after, the people who are going to read the record that he's keeping. He's, he's talking to us. He's talking to the generations that will come after us. And uh, I think he's taking some degree of hope in that and also taking hope in the fact that he shall be lifted up in the last day. But even still, you can't help but wonder what is keeping somebody like Mormon going in the midst of so much wickedness, so much hopelessness to the point where even God at times seems to have sealed the fate of his people, seems to have given up on these people. How is Mormon handling all this? And it's just a really hard question to wrestle with. Um, There's just so much going on there. Sorry, I've been talking for a while. Do you have any immediate thoughts? I think there are three textual intrusions into Mormon's journal narrative where he addresses Latter-day readers directly. And this is, the first one is in chapter 3, verses 17 to 22. The next one is in 5, verses 8 through 24. And then uh, 7, 1 through 10. And in each of these, he takes his own context and uses that as a springboard to address later readers directly and say, look, this is all messed up for me here, but here's what I've learned. Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I don't want you to do. I want you to remember that you're going to go before the judge and that you're going to need to have faith in Christ. And it's it's sort of, well, I don't want to say beautiful, but it's, I think it's valuable that he will knows, well, it's hopeless now for my people, but the least I can do is bear witness to this devastation, record it so that the future generations can know and learn, and that I might take my tragedy and use it as a seed that will bear fruit of faith in millions, literally millions of people in the latter days. Yeah. And that that might be from his own priorities what kept him going. You know, I want to talk a little bit about some of the complexity in Mormon's character because we have in chapter 1 verse 17 it says, "I did remain among them, but I was forbidden to preach unto them because of the hardness of their hearts." 
And because of the hardness of their hearts, the land was cursed for their sake. So he feels prompted. He doesn't quote a revelation from God, but he does feel prompted to say that he felt forbidden to preach to them. And I'm wondering, like, why would a prophet feel forbidden to, pre to, to preach repentance? Because to me, they're really it's hard to know in advance whether a people or a person is beyond hope. I, the way I see Jesus is never giving up on people. And this reminds me a little bit about Jonah, the Jonah the prophet who says, I don't want to cry repentance to the Ninevites because I think they're beyond the place where they deserve a chance to repent. And that's really what grace is, a, is about, is going beyond what people deserve and giving them a chance. Now he does say that the Lord told him. Isn't that interesting? In verse in verse 2 and of chapter 3, he said, now he actually cites the Lord. And it came to uh -huh. pass that the Lord did say unto me, cry unto this people, repent ye, and come unto me, be baptized, so forth. And then verse 3 says that the Lord granted them a chance for repentance. So when he's denying a chance to the, the Nephites, he doesn't quote the Lord. He just say, says that he was forbidden. But then he actually quotes the Lord's explicit words when he's crying mm -hmm. out and giving them a chance for repentance. And I wonder if there's something to be made out of that that's, that somehow the, the ability to give people a chance has more weight or more authority with God. You know, I'm wondering if if the other one had just as much authority, whether he would have quoted the Lord, if there were actual words from the Lord on that. But I'm just a good question. looking at it from my perspective of wanting to give people a chance. From my perspective, I feel like Mormon did want to give his people a chance and simply felt that that, that wasn't the moment. And I feel that his feeling of forbearance was inspired. And I feel that I felt what Mormon felt in that moment of divine restraint. It, it's something I know I can relate to. Just this week, I tried to convince my dad to come to my little sister's wedding. He refused because she's marrying a woman. I was ready to give him a piece of my mind and tell him all the reasons his decision is going to cause a problem. But no sooner I started talking to him that I felt that I shouldn't do any more than let him know the consequences of his decision. As we spoke, it was clear my dad had made up his mind and... Also, that he didn't do any real critical thinking on the matter and wasn't going to. He had deferred his opinions to the likes of T.D. Jakes and other homophobic preachers, and I think it was in that moment that I could articulate what the restraint I felt was, that this simply isn't my father's moment, much like it wasn't the Nephites' moment. I wanted it to be otherwise. You know, my dad's 77, already older than the life expectancy for black men. I don't know how much longer he's going to be with us, even though he's been pretty healthy most of his life. I don't want one of the last things he does in this life to be an act of homophobia against his own daughter on the most important day of her life, but that's what he's doing, and there ain't nothing I can do about that. My point is, though, I wanted to tell my dad what he needed to do and how I felt about it, but I felt pretty strongly like I needed to keep that to myself, and that feeling was validated as I listened to him give his reasons for not going. Mormon, I believe, was validated too. When he finally, finally was allowed to preach, it was in vain. Nobody listened to him. And you could also argue that they were in a better position to listen than they were when Mormon was 15. But anyway, I don't think there's anything too significant about the lack of apparent divine uh, words to Mormon 
And uh, I do feel that the simple phrase that he was for he was forbidden to talk was enough to let us know that there was some kind of divine hand involved in this whole process of Mormon's forbearance. I mean, that's real. That's real. I want to talk a little bit about repentance, because I think culturally in the church, we have some really, really distorted concepts, and there's a lot of just cultural baggage around repentance. And this is something that as a convert, I realize. I think a lot of a lot of Latter-day Saints, they don't realize all the weird things, but coming from the outside, it's very obvious what these weird things are. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you my definition of repentance up front. And it goes back to something that actually happened to me when I was an undergraduate. And I loved the library. I loved books. I still do. People can probably tell. And when I was an undergraduate, I would use books within the library and not check them out. And then I would return them to the shelf when I was done with them because I wanted them to be there the next day when I came back to the library. And I know that if I, there's little signs that says, do not reshelve the books, but put them on this little cart. And I knew that if I put them on the cart, they will go into the back and they won't come back out for several days. And I wanted them to be back on the shelf where I could use them again as quickly as I needed to. But here's where the problem comes in. They caught me doing this. They caught me. They caught me. uh, They got in trouble. Yeah. And one of the library workers came up to me and said, Derek, and they all knew me by name, right? Because I was very much a library person. And they said, Derek, we don't want you to put the, the books that you use in the library back on the shelf. And I said, well, I know, I know the Library of Congress cataloging system so well. I know not to put it in the wrong place. Even if I see something in the wrong place, I'll move it to the right one. Like, I'm not going to mess up. Because that is a problem. If you put a book back in the wrong place, there's no good way of finding it again. So then they said, hey, Derek, let me just explain to you why we have this rule. And I said, okay. And this is what they told me. They said, what we do is we want to keep a record of all of the books that get checked out, and we want to keep a record of all the books that get used in the library. So what we do is we take them in the back, we scan them, and then we reshelve them. And then they said, we do that because when it comes time for acquisitions, we know what books are being used. And so then we can buy more books along the lines of what people are actually using. And when I heard the word acquisitions, my life completely changed because I thought to myself, so you're telling me that if I put my books on the little cart like I'm supposed to, you're going to buy more books like the ones that I'm using? And I thought, wow, like, and from that moment, I never even had the desire to break the rule again. I willingly and gladly put all my books on the little cart so they would get scanned in and they would buy more books like the ones that I like. And this is my view of repentance because after that, I never once felt even tempted to break the rule because I knew what the rule was for. I knew the larger picture before I didn't understand then I understood. And that's what the Greek word metanoia means. It really means, comes from two, two parts, one meaning afterward and the other one meaning understanding. And so you understand afterward. And to me, that's mm. what repentance really is. It's not about feeling sorry and feeling crummy, but it's about understanding the situation so well 
that you don't have to artificially keep yourself from doing the wrong thing, but you realize why it's wrong and you don't have a desire to do that anymore. No, I love that analogy. Um, I've been having this conversation with a friend of mine recently. She loves to say repentance is real and it's one of my favorite things, but like in those conversations, she says something along the lines of like, she seems to have this very similar understanding where repentance isn't about, you know, as you said, feeling crummy about yourself. It's a lot about change into a better person because you understand why that change is necessary. And I love that definition of repentance because it's so liberating, it's so freeing, and it's so inspiring. Like repentance in that context seems a lot more of an inspiring gospel principle because in this regards, repentance is an education. Repentance right, is right. an opportunity to be better. Repentance is you changing into a better person. It's not simply saying sorry for some crappy stuff you did. It is literally an act of becoming a more Christ-like individual, a more intelligent one, a more empathetic one, or a more diligent one, a more obedient one. Like repentance in that respect, as you've described it with your analogy, it is far, it is an opportunity. Like, and when you view repentance like that, you want to utilize that gift as often as you can. You want to utilize it every day. Phrases like you should be repenting every day sound like joys. They don't sound like consignments to the sinful creature that you are. Um, so I love that definition of repentance. I love that view of it. it. It's very liberating and it's very empowering. Yeah, and I think in our culture, there's this idea that not only should you feel bad for the thing you did, we should do some extra stuff to you so you feel bad about those things that hurt you, like whether it's various right. restrictions or other penance type things or... And I'm like, that's not really what repentance is. You know, feeling right. bad, not just about the thing itself, but then about all these artificial consequences that are attached to what you're doing just to teach you a lesson. I don't even know, but that doesn't make any sense to no. me. I, no, I appreciate you saying that because uh, I think it was Channing who actually brought this up during our conversation with the Faithful Feminists a couple weeks back about the faux punitive nature of keeping the sacrament from people as part of the quote unquote repentance process. And you know, little stuff like that just feels a little off to me. She like brought up a couple of good points about that, but like it seems that those people who are in most need of the sacrament are being punished the most. And I do wanna lift that up simply because, you know, it just seems like something that's a little off about right. the process in the church. Cause when I need the sacrament most, when I need repentance most, I don't want to be denied the sacrament, and I don't want other people to be denied that opportunity for growth and that opportunity for improvement, that opportunity to actually commune with God in the most sacred act of the week. I don't want that act to be denied them right. if their heart is in the place where they are trying to be better and do better. And I think that's that's sort of the distinction between, because I sort of defended the... Um, withholding of the the sacrament from people at certain times. And the difference is, I'm not arguing we should withhold it from people who are repenting or going through that process. We should withhold it from the people who aren't repenting so that they exactly. can wake up. And then exactly. as, soon as, they're, as soon as they're ready to repent and, and actually change their mind, then obviously I think they should, same thing with a temple recommend or all these other things, that it may make sense to withhold them to, to give them a wake-up call, but not a, to punish them and to make them feel extra sad about the thing that they're all right. feel, feeling sorry for. 
because right. that's that's what happens. A lot of bishops may think, oh, I have to do something to this person, and then after so many years and so many tears, maybe they can get their recommend back. I mean, that's not what what Jesus did, and that's especially right. not what happened with the parable of the prodigal son, where the father was yeah, just so yeah. happy that from a long way off he saw the son and ran to him and didn't even mention the bad you know the thing that he did wrong he just was so glad to have him back and and there was a party that's how it should be yep. if we have someone who's mm-hmm. repenting is yeah let's have mm-hmm. a party that's actually what jesus said and he's defending why he why he has such such joy flagrant socially inappropriate joy when people repent and when people hang around him let me just share with you there's this American... I love that phrase, by the way. Flagrant, socially inappropriate joy. Oh, yeah. That, I've got a lot of that myself. <laughs> Thinking the same thing. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. I want to share this quote from Fred Beekner, who's an American 20th century theologian. He said, quote, To repent is to come to your senses. It is not so mm. much something you do as something that happens. True Mm. repentance spends less time looking at the past and saying, I'm sorry, than to the future and saying, wow. Let me read this whole thing again. And in fact, this echoes one of the lines in the the parable of the prodigal son is that the the, the prodigal son, he was trying to eat with the pigs and he came to his senses and said, I'm going to go back. But here's it is again. To repent is to come to your senses. It is not so much something you do as something that happens. True repentance spends less time looking at the past and saying, I'm sorry, than to the future and saying, wow. And I wish we would have a cultural understanding in the church that's more along the lines of what Fred Beekner is saying, because I think that's really the biblical model of repentance. Love that quote. Thank you for sharing that. So I want to go back and talk about repentance because that's a lot of what's going on in these six chapters. The issue of whether the Nephites want to repent, it seems that they kind of make a start at repenting in ver- verse 10 of chapter 2, but then they're, they're not really doing it for the right reasons and it doesn't go far enough. But what's interesting is in verse 12 of chapter 2, it says something very interesting. And it came to pass that when I, Mormons, saw their lamentation and their mourning and their sorrow before the Lord, my heart did begin to rejoice within me knowing the mercies and the long-suffering of the Lord. Therefore, supposing that he would be merciful unto them and that they would again become a righteous people. So he says, I know you were, you are a, a patient God, slow to anger, merciful, compassionate, which is exactly what Jonah said. He says, I knew you were that way, so that's why I didn't want to tell the Ninevites. But in this case, Mormon is saying, I knew you were that way, which is why I had some hope that they might repent. This, this kind of runs in tension with his earlier instinct not to give them a chance. And I just, I just find, that, find that really compelling. And, and my instinct is to always give people a chance and say, look, I want to reclaim you for the kingdom of God. And I think that's really something that happened with the, um, in John 11, the woman taken in adultery. I'm sorry, John 8. What did I say? John 8. The uh, woman taken in adultery. It's not that Jesus was pro-adultery or that he was loose in his ethical standards. What he realized is that they're about to kill her. But dead people don't repent. 
and he wanted her to be reclaimed for the kingdom. And I think that's why he preserved her life because he cared about her and wanted to give her a chance in this life to have the kingdom break into her life. And I guess there's a sense in which dead people can repent, but then they're not allowed to contribute to the building up of the kingdom in this world. And I think that's what what the priority was for, for Jesus is to, to save her life and and make a stand about what the real priorities are and what the the kingdom of God is like. It's not about killing people and punishing them. It's about reclaiming them for a future in this world in the in the kingdom. Speaking of women, I want to talk about a very interesting phrasing here that really centers men. Let's look at chapter 2 verse 23. And it came to pass that I okay. did speak unto my people and did urge them with great energy that they would stand boldly before the Lamanites and fight for their wives and their children and their houses and their homes. So the antecedent of their is my people. So he says, I'm going to speak to my people and talk about their wives and their children. So to him, his people were the men, not the, not the women and not the children, but the men. And I'm wondering, where are the women in all this? Like, we don't hear their voices. We don't see them speaking. We also don't even see Mormon's wife. We assume that he has a wife because he has a kid named Moroni. He may have had other sons and daughters. He doesn't mention any daughters. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a little bit of pushback. Is I'm wondering why he didn't record more about the women and what we would be missing if we had the women's perspective on what was going on. Especially on all this violence and whatnot. And, you know, let's talk about mess. what Mormon reports and claims about the, about the Lamanites. If you go to chapter 5, this is very interesting. Chapter 5, verse 15 says, The Nephites being angry that the Lamanites had sacrificed their women and ch- their children. And I found that's, that's very interesting that, that what the Lamanites were doing was, was so offensive. And then it says in verse 21 of chapter 4, The Nephites were driven and slaughtered with an exceedingly great slaughter. Their women and their children were again sacrificed unto idols. Now, I'm not sure if I'm reading this correctly, whether it's the Lamanites were sacrificing their own women and children in order to appease some whatever their view of deity was, or whether the Lamanites were sacrificing the Nephite women and children to idols. That's the way I read it. It's interesting the way it's phrased. And the fact that they were, because it doesn't say that they were slaughtered or that they were just killed or exterminated. It says they were sacrificed. And a sacrifice is different Mm -hmm. because what you're doing is you are offering something to a god. You're saying, like if you bring this, this offering of fruit or offering of grain to the Lord, it's consecrating this and, and giving it as an offering or a gift to the Lord. And so when it says that these women and children were sacrificed unto idols, it makes, makes me pause and think, think about the LGBT community because we LGBTs are very often sacrificed to idols. And let me just unpack that a little bit. The idols, maybe yeah, not these little, little trinkets made out of silver or stone, but it is the idol of heteronormativity. It is the idol of a narrow understanding of the ideal family. I think a lot of people in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints literally worship heterosexuality and heterosexual relationships. 
If you think about how they mm-hmm. talk about Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, that's their, their goal. And I think that even changes their view of Christ because it's no longer about worshiping Christ. They just use Christ and his atonement as a tool for them to be together forever. It's not about, so it's not like the family is in place in service of Christ. It's Christ in place in service to the family, and that's their idol. And gotcha. that is really challenging for people, not just single people and LGBT people, but what about divorced people or widowed people or you know people who don't have children for whatever reason. There's just a lot of ways that people don't, I don't even like the phrase ideal family because the what people think of an ideal family is, it's not even the biblical ideal. The biblical ideal family is the clan or the, the, you know, a larger extended family grouping of people. So let's talk about this. We in the church are sacrificed a number of ways. One is, and a lot of people think that at first they might think this is good. I think there's people in the church that in the past, they didn't know what to do with the gays. They thought if you're gay, marry a woman. If you're a lesbian, marry a man, and then it'll be okay. Or you can be celibate, you know, just don't marry anyone. And a lot of people realizing, well, neither of those work. Neither of those make sense. There are a lot of people, even moderate or conservative people in the LDS church who are willing to say, you know what, I get it. We don't have anything for you. It doesn't work. So you should just leave the church and marry someone of the gender that you know that you are attracted to. And at first you might think, oh, that's progressive. But really what it's saying is our view of the afterlife is such that you were okay with you shooting for a lesser kingdom. That's really how I remember Oaks, President Oaks has even said it this way. He's no longer defending mixed orientation marriage or celibacy. He says, we know that people are going to choose to leave the church and to marry the person that they love and we've got a place for them in the afterlife and it's a secondary place but that's probably the best thing they should do is is the way i take what president oak says now look at how how awful that is because what you're doing is literally sacrificing lgbt folk to keep your doctrine the way you think it should be and that that's a sacrifice i don't like this idea of oh derek you can just shoot for a lower kingdom no that's that's we wouldn't do that to straight people Right, And that's the sense, and I'm not even going to get into the issues around mental and emotional suffering, um, homelessness, or the reality of suicide for some individuals. That's Those are also sacrifices. We LGBTs are being sacrificed in the name of these idols. Here's something else from Mormon 4. It's in the fourth verse. It says, it was because of the armies of the Nephi, Wait, it was because the armies of the Nephites went up unto the Lamanites that they began to be smitten. For were it not for that, the Lamanites couldn't have had no power over them. This is really interesting because it talks about the role of violence in the plot of the Book of Mormon. Because it's very clear that the Nephites had a choice. They went up and decided, we want to really teach the Lamanites a lesson. So we're going to go attack them. And that actually led to the problem. It was because the Nephites initiated at least this particular attack that the Lamanites really devastated them. And that gets back to, we have to read between the lines about the Lamanites. We don't have their side of the story, but they come out looking actually better than the Nephites. First of all, they weren't the ones that were destroyed. But second of all, let's read between the lines about what Mormon says about them. One is that 
the Lamanites were willing to make a peace treaty with the Nephites. I'm like, oh, that sounds good. That doesn't sound too barbaric. That's giving them a, a chance. And then there's the, this is the situation where the Lamanites basically sent an epistle to the Nephites saying, we're going to attack you and giving them a chance rather than some terrorist activity. It is a probably what the Lamanites thought was a just war. And we're going to take every precaution to make sure that, that we uh, do this in a fair way. So here's some more interesting things about the Lamanites. Not only did they seem to not initiate some of the violence, like we said, it's, it's really the Nephite aggression in chapter 4. That's the only reason that the Lamanites fought back. So maybe the Lamanites felt they were doing it in self-defense. And there's some other indications about the character of the Lamanites. One is that they were willing to make a treaty. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 28 that the Nephites made a treaty with the Lamanites, which the Lamanites respected. Then if you look later on in chapter 4, it says, After the tenth year of that treaty, then the Lamanites sent an epistle saying, We're going to prepare to come to battle against the Nephites again. The Lamanites were willing to give them notice. And it's hard to say that that's respectful, but there is a sense in which they weren't doing any terroristic type sneaky thing that they wanted to give the Nephites a fair chance. So you've got this treaty, you've got the giving them the fair notice, you've got this indication in chapter four that the Lamanites may not have wanted to initiate the aggression, but only as a response to what the Nephites were doing. That is really interesting because we don't have what the Lamanites thought of this, but they come out kind of looking a lot better than the Nephites. How do you react to this? I have no strong reaction to this, with the exception of, at this point, I am just like, okay, Lamanites are messing up, the Nephites are messing up. There's a sentence after that first verse you quoted where it says, the wicked punish the wicked, and I'm just like, you know what? Anything goes at this point. Everybody's rejecting God at this point, and everybody is bringing on their own curses, as has been prophesied by both Abinadi and Samuel the Lamanite, so, you know... I don't have any particularly strong feelings about the type of warfare they're engaging in. Right. I guess it's true that just because one side is wicked doesn't mean the other side is automatically good. They could they could both be very wicked, which is clearly what's going on. But I, th right. I still think there's some hint of complexity here. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The question is kind of, for me, what is what are the implications of that complexity for how we read the text? Well, for me, I think it's about not seeing everything as black and white and all one-sided and sort of this Disney villain and hero characterization because that really impacts okay. our real life because no one, no group of people can be demonized as completely bad or idolized as completely good. And this will change how we treat people. It would change what we do even with the polarization of our political climate in, in the United States. And I, I think it builds a little maybe empathy for the other side. Now, some people are going to get mad at me for being empath empathetic to the other side. <laughs> but all I want to do is understand because we can't get them to go away. That, right. that's not a, So we have to learn to live together. We have to learn to obviously not at all tolerate any injustices from the other side. But we need to, in a democratic society all these voters that we need to somehow figure out what's going on and fix it. And we can't do that by pretending that we don't have anything to talk about with the other side. 
And this gets mm-hmm. this gets back into the role of contention because we see in Fourth Nephi, just just going back to Fourth Nephi for a second, it says many times that there was no contention. And I want to talk about how that can be used within the church in a very inappropriate way. I don't think I talked about this last time. But there are some times where contention is appropriate. And this is what almost every civil rights movement gets is they say, oh, you're too bold or too fast or you need more patience or you're just saying it the wrong way. And that's what Kaepernick proved is that there's no way that you can say it. He literally just kneeled and didn't you know and people got mad at that and like yeah so so i want to just bring up this verse from jude jude 1 3 so here it says beloved when i gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, this word contending is really an athletic term. It's like a competition-type contending where you really mm-hmm. struggle. You exert yourself, and you see your adversary as someone to be defeated in some way or another. And notice, if you look at the context of Jude, he's not talking about contending against unbelievers outside the church, you know, the these people not part of the body. He's talking about contending within the church. People miss that because they don't read it in the context of the whole the whole letter of Jude. But he's really talking about divisions within the church and false teachings creeping into the church and how we need to contend within the church for the heritage that we have as saints. And so let's let's dial this back into what's going on here with fourth Nephi in contention because the situation there and we talked about this is that it was the presence of Christ that led and the presence of justice that led to the conditions where you didn't need to contend right but in this case the author of Jude is saying look there's times to contend and I think that's where the spirit comes into play and personal revelation and how you contend and so when when people might accuse us of being contentious in the church because we're just naming the truth, right? You can't repent of the truth. The truth Mm -hmm. is what it is. And when we name the truth, we name the injustice, we name the discrimination that is happening to my people in this church. How am I not going to say something? And Mm -hmm. why, why should it be wrong for me to speak out? I just thought of one more thing I wanted to say. It has to Brilliant. do with how we characterize the Lamanites and whether they could have repented. Because one of the ironies is what would have happened if if Mormon decided to do what Samuel the Lamanite did is cross lines and go to the other side and say, look, I've got a message from the Lord for you. And I suspect that given these hints of complexity around the characterization of the Lamanites, Maybe they would have repented. Maybe they would have been like the Ninevites. Or maybe they would have been like Pharaoh who didn't repent. And his heart was hardened, and the only solution there was to destroy the army of the Egyptians, at least the way it's narrated in Exodus. And I'm wondering about that. I wonder if Mormon was ever tempted to say, hey, I want to go over the Lamanites. Maybe the Nephites don't have a chance, but the Lamanites might have a chance at repenting. That's all I have, I think, for these chapters. 
I'm looking forward to discussing more of this in the context of 7 through 9 and also Mormon's final sermon to his son by the time we get to Moroni. I think that'll really help me personally contextualize what uh, Mormon is experiencing here and how he's responding to it. But uh, yeah, I think this is a good place to end for now some housekeeping items. Wanted to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. That is DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at BeyondTheBlockPodcast.com and also on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just want to remind you guys that we do have a glow page that we use that if people want to contribute in any way to the show they can via our glow page um, anybody who does contribute in any way will be able to join our facebook collaborator community where you can share ideas about the show with us uh, share your insights have more access and uh, interaction with derek and i uh, get access to our notes get access to uh, our community on a more personal level and just enjoy all the other benefits that come with that. I also can see what we're planning for the show and also other projects that we're working on behind the scenes, like uh, potential name changes, potential resources we'll be creating, guests we might be having for bonus episodes. Um, so if you're trying to like get at us or have more collaboration with us in that regard, that is the way to do it. Uh, you can offer a contribution by going to glow.fm slash beyond the block. That's glow, G-L-O-W dot F-M slash beyond the block. And if you can't contribute financially, you can just simply share the Glow page or share our podcast with people on your socials. And if you just let us know that you've done that, we will still happily give you access because, you know, we just want to be able to honor however people are choosing to share us or contribute to this ministry that Derek and I have chosen to do. So I think that's all I got. If there's nothing else, then we shall see all of you next week on the next episode. Yeah. Until we meet again next week. We'll see all of you next week. And thanks for listening. Bye, everyone.